The reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and that's on page 1,219 of the Blue Bibles on your seats. So that's 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, on page 1219. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Good morning. It's great to see you all this morning. Jules, thank you so much for reading for us. Let me begin by, by praying. Father, we thank you so much for your word and that we have uh, this incredible privilege of hearing you speak to us. Father, we pray that you'd um, speak to us this morning as we uh, hear your word and we pray that your spirit would soften our hearts to receive it. And we pray that um, this passage would help us to um, to make sense of suffering as Christians and how to respond to it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to picture Jeff, who is in his early 40s and works in the city. His job occasionally requires him to travel abroad for important meetings. And in the past, these meetings were something he really looked forward to. Now, Jeff has always been viewed by others in his office as a bit of a, a, bit of a man's man, as one of the lads. And when traveling to places like uh, New York or Tokyo, uh, one of his highlights would be to, to visit a local gentleman's club, either with his colleagues or business partners. But Jeff's really been dreading his next trip. Since his last trip abroad, Jeff's become a Christian. And he doesn't know how his colleagues will react if he tells them that he won't be joining them at that gentleman's club, which they're all very excited about visiting. I want you also to picture Gemma. She's in her mid-twenties and is really looking forward to Stephanie, one of her best friends from uni, getting married. Now, back at uni, uh, Gemma was known for being a, a party animal, and she'd regularly get drunk with her friends at the campus nightclub. Now, although she, she can't wait uh, for the wedding in order to celebrate her friend's big day, she's not sure whether or not to go to the hen party. 
That's because Gemma became a Christian shortly after finishing university. And recently, she's been learning from the Bible about the importance of living a godly life. And she, if she goes to the hen party, she feels it won't be easy to avoid getting drunk because that's what everyone else is going to be doing and what they'll expect her to do. But Gemma also knows that not going would really upset Stephanie. Jeff and Gemma each have a decision to make. And their choice could potentially very easily land them in sin, or it could end up disappointing or even angering their colleagues and friends. So what are they to do? And what are we to do when we face similar decisions? I think today's passage will help us to think this through. Christians in the first century desiring to live godly lives were, like us, also pressured not to. Have a look at what Peter says to them in verse 3. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. How are the Christians Peter Peter is writing to being treated by unbelievers? They're being derided for not sinning. And and, and the the non-Christians find their decision not to sin startling. They are surprised that you do not join them. Peter says, and why are they surprised? As we see in verse 3, the Christians, before becoming believers, also used to engage in those very sins which they're now turning away from. And you can imagine their friend's response to them. What do you mean you don't want to come drinking with us? You used to love going out on the lash. Do you think you're too good for us now that you've become a Christian? And as they're facing this mockery uh, from their own friends and colleagues, they're probably feeling discouraged. They're learning that being a Christian isn't easy. And maybe they're feeling the temptation to just go along with sinning with those around them because they want to save their friendships and they don't want to stick out at work. But I want us to go back to chapter 2, verse 11, to see what Peter has to say to Christians who are tempted to sin so as not to stir up a fuss or so that they'll blend in with the unbelievers around them. Peter says in chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. What is Peter doing here? He's urging Christians not to sin, isn't he? And did you notice how he refers to them as foreigners and exiles? When Christians are tempted to sin and blend in, Peter tells them to not sin 
but to stick out. When Christians are tempted to sin and blend in, Peter tells them to not sin, but to stick out. I once heard someone say that Christians should stick out like healthy thumbs. As Christians, when when we refuse to engage in sin with those around us, we stick out. We stick out like many foreigners often do. Where I used to live in East London, there was a massive Muslim Bangladeshi community. And it was impossible not to notice them. They would speak Bengali to one another on the streets. The men would, would sport very similar beards and wear similar clothing. And many of the women would wear hijabs or even niqabs. The people in that community were not afraid to be viewed as being different. They were proud of their background. It wasn't something they wanted to hide. Now, what did their dress code and their other practices reveal? They revealed that the people had chosen not to fully embrace their host culture. This is what Peter, in a sense, is encouraging us to do. Not to fully embrace our host culture. Specifically, we are not to embrace the sinful behaviors of many of the unbelievers we know. And the the behaviors that they think are acceptable. Now, what will happen when we do that? We'll stick out. We'll stick out. And people will disparage us. People will taunt us. And people will dislike us. This is why it's tempting for Jeff to just go along to the gentleman's club. This is why it's tempting for Gemma to just go along and get drunk. Sin is the path of least resistance. It's easier to just go with the flow, that is, with the flow of the world around us. But if we choose not to go with the flow, how do we do it when we know it'll lead to suffering? What do you do when refusing to sin will cause you to suffer? That's the question we're thinking about this morning. What do you do when refusing to sin will cause you to suffer? Here's what you do. You arm yourself for suffering. That's our first and only point today, although we'll have a couple of sub-points as well. Our point today is arm yourself for suffering. Have a look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, Because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. What are we to do when we know refusing to sin will cause us to be mistreated? We need to arm ourselves for that suffering. 
We need to expect the suffering and ready ourselves for it. Now, I want to point out something that, although obvious, is important. Peter is not saying what we, what we would want him to say. We'd want him to say how we can avoid suffering. But he's not. Rather, he's telling us to expect suffering and get ready for it. Now, I know that's obvious, but it's worth mentioning because we're always looking for a way out of suffering, aren't we? And Peter doesn't give us that. In fact, he says that suffering for living Christianly can be a sign of spiritual health. He says in verse 1 that whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. What does that mean? Does he mean that when a Christian suffers that they've completely stopped sinning? That they've attained sinless perfection? Of course not. We know, we know that can't be true from other parts of the Bible as well as from our own experience. What I think he means in verses 1 and 2 is this. If you're willing to suffer for not sinning, you're effectively saying, I'm done with sin. From now on, I'm living for God. I'm done with sin. From now on, I'm living for God. It's a change of direction. Instead of living for yourself and your sinful desires, you're going, okay, no, no, from now on, I'm going to live for God. I'm going to live to please Him. I think that's what Peter is saying here. And I think it, it comes across a bit more clearly in the Greek as well as, well as in some other translations, such as um, the ESV, than it does uh, here in the NIV. Okay, so that's the end of that sidebar. Let's return to this language of arming yourselves. Why might Peter use it? Why does he use this particular language of arming yourself? Again, chapter 2, verse 11 uh, is helpful. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Why do we need to arm ourselves? Because we're in a spiritual war. We need to put on the all-important armor so that we'll withstand the onslaught. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to have any hope of staying on our feet when the world pressures us to sin, we'll need to have the right armor. We'll need to be like a soldier prepared for battle. As Christians, we need to expect to suffer for not engaging in the world's sin, and we need to ready ourselves for it. Now, what exactly are we to arm ourselves with? We ought to arm ourselves with the attitude of Christ, who himself also suffered. And what was Christ's attitude? We need to go back to chapter 2 again, but this time to chapter 2, verse 21. In chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example 
that you should follow in his steps. Now listen to how we are to follow Christ's example. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Friends, what was Christ's attitude to suffering? He didn't try to get even when he was insulted. And he didn't make threats to those causing his suffering. Rather, he he entrusted himself to God the Father, knowing that he would judge justly. So here is Christ's attitude, not retaliating, but relying on God's judgment. And this is the attitude that Peter wants us to share. Don't retaliate against those causing you suffering, but rely on God's judgment, on God's justice. And Peter builds on this point in verse 5 in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 5, speaking of those who mistreat Christians, Peter says, but they they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What do you do when refusing to sin will cause you to suffer? Arm yourself for suffering like Christ, leaving judgment to God. That's our first sub-point, leaving judgment to God. Now, by leaving judgment to God, I don't mean that we should have a vindictive desire that our persecutors will pay for what they've done to Christians. Our desire, first and foremost, should be that those who persecute Christians would come to repentance and find forgiveness and salvation in Christ. Forgiveness is precisely what Christ wanted for those who crucified him. Even though he had every right to be angry with them, he prayed for them as he hung on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus practiced what he preached love your enemies. Throughout his ministry, Jesus kept calling people to repentance, didn't he? I've been spending quite a bit of time in Luke's gospel recently. It just really strikes me how it keeps coming again to this repent, repent, repent. What Jesus most wanted was for people to repent of their sin. And that is what we should want. Even of our enemies. Even for our enemies. We should want those who cause our suffering to repent and come to Christ. Now, should they never repent? Ultimately, they will have to give an account for what they've done to Christians. They'll not get away with it, so to speak. So, we can leave judgment to God. We should hope and pray that those who persecute Christians will repent. 
But if they don't, we are not to seek revenge. We can trust God to judge fairly. So brothers and sisters, let's arm ourselves for suffering, leaving judgment to God. And let's also arm ourselves for suffering by looking forward to the resurrection. This is our second point. Looking forward, second sub-point, looking forward to the resurrection. Look at me at verse 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is another verse in 1 Peter that upon first reading can cause us to scratch our heads. What exactly is Peter saying here? Peter has just been speaking about how Christians are persecuted for choosing not to engage in sin and about the judgment that their persecutors will face unless they repent. Judgment is again mentioned here in verse 6. But I think this is a different type of judgment. The judgment here is not divine. It's not divine judgment, but human judgment. So Peter says that there are people who heard the gospel but have since died. And he says that these people were judged according to human standards. What does he mean? It's quite probable that there were some Christians who were judged in Roman courts that condemned them to death because of their faith. Now, these believers were so willing to suffer for not sinning that their commitment to Christ even led to them becoming martyrs. How were they able to suffer to such a degree? Look at what Peter says of them at the end of verse 6. They will live according to God in regard to the Spirit. They will live according to God in regard to the Spirit. In other words, they'll be raised from the dead. How were Christians able to suffer even unto death by looking forward to the resurrection? And that's something that we should do too. Going back to Jeff and Gemma, if they are rejected by their colleagues and friends, death and resurrection means they can know that their suffering will only ever be temporary. One day, their suffering for living for Christ will come to an end. And then they'll be raised with Christ. They'll be raised to life for eternity with their Savior. Doesn't that put our momentary suffering into perspective? Now, it doesn't make us suffering a walk in the park. but it does enable us to stand while facing it. 
Brothers and sisters, let's be those who arm ourselves for suffering, for not sinning, by leaving judgment to God, just as Christ did, and by looking forward to the resurrection. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and you're thinking, how does this all apply to me? I think the sub-points are highly relevant. There is going to be a day of judgment. How will you fare on that day? Jesus is the one who can save you from being condemned on judgment day. He can save you because he suffered and died for sinners. So will you consider following him? If you do, you too can look forward to being raised from the dead to eternal life. I really hope that you'll consider it. And if, if you do, please do come and speak to me about it. I'd love to chat to you, to chat to you more. But now, let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, so much for this passage and for uh, just how honest and truthful it is. Uh, we, don't, we, we confess that we don't like to suffer. We try to do everything we can in order to avoid it. Father, we do pray that you would help us um, not to try to run away from, su- from suffering, but to expect it and to ready ourselves for it, to arm ourselves for it. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to do that um, uh, by causing us to leave judgment to, to you and not to take judgment into our own hands uh, when we do suffer. And Father, we pray that you'd also help us to endure through suffering by looking forward to the resurrection, the fact that one day we will be with you in glory. And Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.